Do you have a Bible with you? If you do, Isaiah chapter 11 is where we're going to turn. Isaiah chapter 11. During these weeks leading up to Christmas, which has come to be a beloved time in the life of the church, a time of Advent, a time of both remembering a previous waiting and then stepping into a joyful, expectant waiting as the church, because Christ will, in fact, come again. And And during during this this time of waiting, this Advent, one of the things that we have determined to do, that we decided to do for these weeks, is to look at one prophet in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, and to consider what a gift it is, what a cool thing it is that God, in the midst of difficult circumstances, this is what God does. His people live their lives in the middle of history, and there's ups and there's downs, and there's victories and there's defeats. There are wise and righteous kings, and there are difficult and dumb rulers, all kinds of things happening, and in the midst of potentially hopeless circumstances, God sends his spirit to empower people to speak hope, to give promises. And Isaiah was one of those men. Isaiah was set down into the midst of circumstances, not glorious, wonderful, joyful circumstances, circumstances that were full of questions, difficulty, unfulfilled promises, And there, right on the streets of those kind of places, with those kind of worried people, through Isaiah, God spoke hope. He gave words again and again and again, saying it won't always be like this. God will move. God will come. God will change things. And we look at a prophet like Isaiah because we can both rejoice in what he promised that has come to pass, and we can see a pattern So we're grabbing onto the promises that Isaiah had, but we're also noticing and grateful for a pattern. And that is is that God still speaks hope into present circumstances. His spirit still rests. He has given his church a responsibility to walk in the midst of a culture and a place where people are upended, where everything is not always going well, in the midst of victories and defeats, sin and righteousness, wise and unwise rulers, and if we would listen, he speaks hope. That's what the Spirit of God does. And so Isaiah is full, is full of these moments where we see a glimpse, where the curtain is pulled back, and we see that back there, even in the midst of difficulty, God is whipping up something joyful, something hopeful. We chose for this morning's text, Isaiah chapter 11. So I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. I'd love for you to follow along. If you have a a Bible with you, that'd be great. They should be on the screen. There's also a black hardcover Bible in front of you that would be a gift to you if you needed one. But if you would follow along, this is the first verse of Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, 
The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. God, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the incarnation, for the joy it is to live on the other side of this first coming. And I ask now that you would fulfill here in our midst a few of your promises. You've promised that blind eyes would see. You've promised that stopped up deaf ears could hear. And in so much as we are blind and deaf this morning, we ask God, would you please fulfill those promises in us? We don't want to see dimly or only darkness. We don't want to be obtuse or deaf to all of the good things that you're doing. So, Spirit of God, please come. Rest here. I pray for comfort for all the things that we bring and that we're openly hurting with, the things that we would confess, our sadnesses and sorrow, the sort of nagging sufferings, and then also for the things that we wouldn't dare confess, things that we don't have the courage to acknowledge, that we're ignorant of in ourselves, the trajectories. Spirit of God, please move and comfort. I pray, God, as well, that you would give us confidence in Scripture. Help us to wait expectantly, to not go through the motions. So whatever jadedness is in us, whatever hurt remains Whatever difficulty we have believing good things, leaning in, I pray that you would awaken us. Spirit of God, give shiny new light, a new light of hope. And I ask God that you would help us, um, not because we're worthy, we haven't come here to impress you. You don't need our gifts or our time. My words can't move minds or hearts, every lasting good that could happen here this morning, Father, is going to be your mercy, so please be merciful to us. You're our Father and we're your children. Give us good gifts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I started this discussion in Isaiah by asking the simple question, what are you waiting for? What are we waiting for? And I ask that question in the biggest sense, meaning if God did all that you wanted, or if you were able to discover the deepest desires of your heart, what are you actually hoping for? What are you inviting people to when you say, why don't you come to church with me, or why don't you consider Jesus? What are we waiting for? And that was the big 
question. Now, I want to ask a similar question this morning, but I want to pinpoint it a little bit more closely. If I ask the question, what are you waiting for? I mean, what are the characteristics of the thing or the person you're waiting for? After all, what if you kept on waiting and you missed it? Have you ever gone to meet someone for a business meeting or a job interview or to hang out? I'll just bring it up. It might be painful, a blind date or something. And you don't think about one of the most important factors, and that is, how will I know who this person is? So you pull into the parking lot, and you think to yourself, do I get out of the car now, or do I not? Do I make eye contact with everyone? Do I look for people with smiles, or people who look waiting, like I'm waiting? What if it's the wrong guy, and I smile nicely at him, and now he tries to date me while I'm on my blind date? You see the conundrum? What if the person who's about to interview me for a job is sitting next to the wrong person that I ask if it's them, and now I have demonstrated how foolish I am in front of the person? And so oftentimes, if you're meeting someone brand new, they'll give you little tips or hints of something to look for. Very easy for me. Actually, less easy, because there's more of us now. (laughs) I'll say... Here's what you do. First, look for someone with lots and lots and lots of hair, and then imagine the opposite. (laughs) Just imagine that that scenario, or I'll tell them, um, I'll try to be sitting here, I'll be standing there, or look for the person, I'll be wearing this, I'll have on green, or I'll, you know, for some of you, I'll be talking loudly on my phone in public, or I'll be, you know, there are things that mark us. How do you know what someone is like? And one of the things that Isaiah is going to do is he's not only going to speak out hope, he's going to tell Israel, hey, what are you waiting for? Something good. But he's going to give them some marks. He's going to show them so that they don't miss it. And Isaiah chapter 11 11 is about the marks and characteristics of the king. If we are awaiting the king, how will we know when he's come? And in this chapter, Isaiah chapter 11, we see some of the things that we are to look for if we're looking for this king. It highlights the marks, the character, the activity, and then finally the consequences. And if you look through Isaiah 11, I think you can see them. You can say, well, what are the marks of this king? And what is his character like? And what does he do? And then finally, what happens when he rules? And those would all be things we could look for. If it's the Spirit of God that moves us to lift our eyes to the horizon and say, I'm waiting, he's coming, then Isaiah 11 helps to instruct us and pinpoint more narrow down who it is that we are waiting for. And so I'm going to point out the first thing, the first mark, and I would say that this mark is so important and so significant that we're going to spend much of the rest of the morning considering this. The first mark that you have the right king, or that this person has come, is as according to verse 2, that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The coming king will be that king where the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him. Now, this is not a new idea. God, in the history of Israel, had shown them at different times the possibility, the wonder that he could, in his form, in, a, in the form sounds like I'm uh, committing Trinitarian heresy, but the Spirit of God could dwell and rest among His people. It wasn't only that He was in a cloud or in the fire, 
But at different times, he would send his spirit and power to rest on people, and then things would happen. So, maybe most famously to you, the first king of Israel, that they demanded, the spirit of God actually rested on Saul, and he was able to rule and to reign in certain ways and to have victory in certain ways because God's spirit had been gifted to him, and it came down and it dwelt and rested on him. And then famously, because of his sin, his obstinate heart, and his arrogance, Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God was then pulled away from Saul. This is an example or a testimony that God can at times have his Spirit rest on humankind. And it wasn't just kings. In fact, the prophets, Isaiah himself, is an example of the Spirit of God resting on people for different purposes. We see that prophecy comes as a result of this. This is one example, Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11, how do we explain the way that God sometimes speaks to us? Well, it says this, then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now, this is interesting, that little phrase. Well, both of the things are interesting. You're telling me God descended in a cloud and then he took some of his spirit like a salt shaker and he he did this on 70 of the elders and as soon as they received his spirit, they began to speak out hope and truthful things. That's amazing. But we should be in awe and wonder of that in the same way we were, that God could take a man as rugged and handsome and tall as Saul was, could take a man and just sprinkle a little spirit of God in him, and there was his administrative rule in the earth. That's a wondrous thing, but there's a second thing here that should be noted. In those circumstances, both the circumstance of Saul and in these prophets, of these elders, in Numbers chapter 11, the resting spirit of God was removed. They did not continue doing this. God had been giving little hints, examples of what was possible, but he had not committed, and his spirit did not dwell or rest on man in fullness, nor in an ongoing way. And so Isaiah, when he's in the midst of these difficult circumstances, he cries out and he says, here's the mark, here's one of the marks of the, of the king that you're waiting for. The Spirit of the Lord will not just descend on him, not just be sprinkled on him, but the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, set up shop, and dwell in him. And it is that mark that will let you know that you have the right one. And what we're going to see is, this fact is the major defining factor of a true and an ongoing work of God, or something else. What happens when the Spirit of God dwells and rests and stays? Well, all kinds of things. All of the character and all of the activity and all the consequences of this king that we read about in Isaiah 11. Do you want to see a place where lions eat straw like an ox? Do you want to see a place where children can play over the adder's den? Do you believe that it's possible that there is a kingdom coming where no one will hurt or destroy? Can you imagine that? My kids can't even imagine that playing Minecraft for one hour. There's always, always, always someone who hurts or destroys. Does anyone play Minecraft people to know this? You got some people who build beautiful things, and you got some kids who go in there to sneak around with dynamite and blow things up. 
someone always hurts and destroys. And here in Isaiah 11, he says, look, when this king comes and the Spirit of God rests on him, no one will hurt or destroy. I wouldn't mind living in a place like that. Only building and growth all the time. Only life, no decay. That's an amazing place. All this is possible because the Spirit of the Lord is dwelling on this king. So, here's a question for you. Did Jesus meet this requirement? Was Jesus the kind of king who would have the Spirit of the Lord rest on him in an ongoing way? Did Jesus have the marks, the characteristics, the activity, and the consequences that Isaiah mentioned? Because if not, we should look elsewhere. The question becomes, did Jesus minister by, was he empowered by, and was he marked by the resting Spirit of God? If he was, then we rejoice and we say the King has come. If he was not, then we should look for someone else. And that becomes the defining factor for those who are living in these days and for us, and it was the defining factor for those in Jesus' day as well. How can we investigate how relentless the Spirit of God was in Jesus? Well, I'm going to suggest that this morning, the way we're going to investigate this one mark, I said Isaiah 11 has a number of things, marks and character and activity and consequences, but I want to investigate this one mark to make sure we have the right guy. Have you ever considered how it is that Jesus accomplished what he accomplished? He was fully man, born an actual baby. How is it that he lived the way that he did? Well, one might say, he was a fully man, but he was also fully God, and so he probably just cheated. So whenever he wanted to, he stopped being fully human, and he just started being fully God. Like putting in a cheat code in a game. The reality is, is that the way that Jesus accomplished all that he accomplished in this world, the way we know he was the one, the awaited king, was that the Spirit of God rested on him. The Spirit of God came on a fully human Jesus Christ in order for him to walk in fullness and in power to have the kind of character described in Isaiah 11, to have the kind of activity described in Isaiah 11, and finally, for us to hope in the kind of consequences described in Isaiah 11. So, I'm going to start looking from Luke chapter 1 at the unprecedented work and the ministry of the Spirit of God coming to bring us Jesus. How will we know? All of Israel's waiting. How will we know? Are we looking for the bald guy? Are we looking for the guy in the blue shirt? Are we at the coffee shop or in the corner? Which street are we on? How will we know where to meet him. And the way we know to meet him is because the Spirit of God will rest, and Luke knows this too, so he begins to unfold for us a picture of the relentless Spirit of God in Jesus' life. So let me start walking through. This is going to be a little bit like a, you jumped on a tour bus. You okay with that? I promise I'll drop you right back off here, and you can go to your car. So you're going to jump on a tour bus for a minute, and we're going to go through the first few chapters of Luke's gospel. And we're going to look at something that is sometimes overlooked. Whenever Jesus does awesome stuff, sometimes it's easy to gloss it over because Jesus is awesome, and so he does awesome stuff. But the Bible's trying to tell us something. Not only that he does awesome stuff, but how. 
So let's look at the ministry of Jesus, this coming king. Luke chapter 1, verse 15. This is the announcement of John the Baptist coming to Elizabeth first. And in the description of the coming of John the Baptist, verse 15 says this, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And what is it about the John the Baptist that will start to make us curious about the coming king? It says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Well, there's that spirit showing up at the beginning of the story of how Jesus comes. Then you fast forward to verse 35 in Luke chapter 1. We move from Elizabeth to her cousin, Mary, and an angel comes to her and to describe and to answer her questions how it is that she will be pregnant, because Mary knows not only her own life and, and innocence, but biology, to answer the question, how could I possibly be pregnant? This is what the angel says in verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the Spirit of God is coming down from heaven in two different circumstances to mark the arrival of the awaited king, Elizabeth. The Spirit of God is going to stir things up. Mary, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. Then, later, if you know the story, in verse 41 of Luke chapter 1, Elizabeth and Mary go to hang out. Mary says, well, this seems strange, but I better go ask my cousin what's happening. It says in verse 41, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's what we're starting to learn, and you're going to keep paying attention. You can't tell the story of Christmas without showing the relentless ministry of the Spirit of God. God's Spirit is relentless through the whole story. None of it makes sense if He is not coming and dwelling and moving. So, Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit. And it seems, by inference, the baby filled with the Holy Spirit, already being filled with the Holy Spirit from His mother's womb. We got it explicitly in verse 15, but I think what he's trying to tell us in verse 41 by the baby leaping in her womb, which I've never been pregnant, not even once, that sounds like something. <laughs> I know that you know the old story, and this is a remarkable thing. Oh, look, he's kicking. <laughs> but maybe you have. Maybe moms, you felt like, no, 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 he's not kicking. He's leaping, leaping in the womb. Spirit of God moving these things. Verse 66 of John the Baptist, when he grew up, when he grew up, how is it that John the Baptist became the marker, the guy who would cry out and say that the, the king is coming? Well, after discussing him and thinking about how he got his name and what happened with his father, it says in verse 66 and 67 of Luke, Luke chapter 1, all who heard them, these things, laid up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying, all the people notice, hmm, this is strange, the Spirit of God is at work in a different way. It's resting, dwelling. And Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit in order to prophesy, and he cries out and says the Redeemer is coming. Now fast forward to Luke chapter 2. We're going to go to verse 25. I'm skipping over all the parts that you know. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. After the part that you read on Christmas morning, while your kids are groggy and want their gifts, verse 25 of Luke chapter 2, 
shows a scene where Jesus is presented the temple. And listen to what happens when Jesus is presented the temple. It says in verse 25 of Luke 2, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Simeon, the Holy Spirit, was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And then he came in the Spirit that day into the temple. This Spirit is relentless. This marking Spirit is all over the place. The Spirit is sending the angels, and the Spirit is speaking to Elizabeth, and the Spirit is filling John the Baptist, and the Spirit is assuring and comforting Mary, and the Spirit is falling on Elizabeth, and the Spirit is falling on Zechariah, and the Spirit dwelling in this Simeon who cries out and says, this is the one. The Spirit of Christmas is indomitable. You ever known someone who's, who's relentless in their Christmas spirit? They get it from here. Now, I push back a little bit sometimes, not in that kind of way, but I'm the kind of person who usually says, let's get through Thanksgiving first, because our first president decreed it when he was sick of Hobby Lobby or, or something like that. I don't remember the exact history. But the point is, Christmas for a lot of people, has a kind of spirit about it that's relentless. And I would say that maybe those people are imitating the actual spirit who, in order to bring this about, is showing and is marking the coming of this king. So Simeon cries out and says, oh, it's the spirit telling me. It's marking. And then verse 40 of Luke chapter 2. We're still on the tour bus. Luke 40. It says, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Boy, there's a lot of things that I would pray for my kids. I want them to grow and be strong, and I want them to be wise, but nothing can match something that's like this. God, just have your favor rest on them. And you know what marked Jesus, even from the time that he was a small child? God's favor was on him. Luke chapter 3, we'll fast forward again. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus goes, and in the same way, kind of mirroring the interaction between Mary and Elizabeth, Jesus goes to his cousin. He goes to John, who is baptizing out in the wilderness. And here's what we overhear, what we see John saying. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, when Jesus comes, he will proclaim and bring a dwelling, a resting of the Holy Spirit like you've never seen before. What will mark Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist says? Oh, well, look, he's, you're coming out to see me. And John was quite the spectacle. He's a locust, honey-topped, honey locust-eating, crazy man in the wilderness who baptizes people and declares things. He's gathering a crowd. He's noteworthy. Everyone's coming, and they're wondering what's going on. And he said, no, 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 no. You're looking for the wrong guy. Let me tell you what you should look for. Look for someone who can baptize with the Holy Spirit. A few verses later, Jesus submits and commits to a baptism, a baptism that is recorded in all four Gospels. We find this in verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 3. When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, 
And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And here, explicitly, perhaps more than anywhere else, we have Isaiah 11 coming to life in fruition to mark this man. Heaven itself opens. The Spirit descends like a dove. The voice comes from heaven. All of the triune God announcing to the universe that the King has come. Generations and generations and generations, thousands or hundreds and hundreds, up to a thousand plus years of waiting for Israel. And the mark that they're looking for is being fulfilled in their midst. And what is that mark? When the king comes, the Spirit of God will rest on him. So, you might say, well, this was a good mark and that was for everybody else. I would argue that this baptism was as much for Jesus and his ministry as for us looking in. How do I know that? Because the rest of the story of Jesus is told by him continually tapping into this power of the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Know what happens. Three comes through to the end. He's baptized. The Spirit descends and rests. And then chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, comma, it's a huge comma. It's not a throwaway. I know it's easy to read the Bible and look, and Jesus was awesome and Spirit words and God and Father and amen. It's not an insignificant comment. And Jesus, comma, full of the Holy Spirit. This is the Bible announcing to us, and Jesus fulfilling all the prophecies, and Jesus the rightful awaited king, and Jesus the one marked out by God forever, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. What we're going to see is that it is the mark of the Holy Spirit that not only set Jesus apart, but empowered him for the rest of his life. Verse 14 of chapter 4. It says in Luke 4, 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. All right, last one. Ready? Last stop on the Luke tour bus. It wouldn't be if you took the extended tour, but you only signed up for the regular one. This is the last stop. Chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Jesus having been baptized, having the Holy Spirit resting on him, returning to Galilee, all these things doing in this power of the Spirit, he finally walks into the temple. And in verse 17 of Luke chapter 4, he records this, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus wanted to make sure that we didn't miss it. Now you might say, where Jesus unrolled the scroll and he read it wrong, because we just read Isaiah chapter 11, that the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him, but it doesn't say these other things about anointed to proclaim good news. Well, you gotta, you got to wait a little bit. It's coming. This is Isaiah chapter 61. From chapter 11 of Isaiah to 61, he's going to re- repeat the same refrain. This is how you'll know. You'll know that the king has come because the spirit of the Lord will be upon him in a way that has been unprecedented, not only in measure, 
but unprecedented in staying power. This king will come, and with him he will usher in an anointing of the Spirit of God unlike anything the world has ever seen. This is another one of those circumstances where people who critique, you know, there's, there's some who would critique the deity of Jesus and say, you know, he never claimed to be God. He just wanted to be a good example, and then he got killed for, you know, for rabble-rousing or something because of a revolution. It's another one of those instances where they just haven't read their Bibles very well at all. What do you think Jesus was trying to accomplish by marching in at the beginning of his ministry after heaven opened and the dove descended and the Father spoke? What do you think he was trying to accomplish by marking into the temple and saying, where's the scrolls? And they say, well, which one do you want? Uh, give me the Isaiah one. And I don't know how big it was. They bring it over. Or if it was small, they bring it over. And he's got to unroll it. You imagine people just watching him. He, he unrolls the scroll. Not sure if they probably had a mechanism for it. Maybe he just had to like release a pin and then it just like dropped to the ground. Or maybe people were in rapt attention and he's unrolling it and he's unrolling it and he's finding and he's waiting. And then he stands before them and he reads the hopeful, prophetic, marking statement of what the king would be. And he speaks these things concerning himself. Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And it is this fact, this reality, this characteristic of Jesus that makes us rejoice in him. It makes us hopeful that he will be able to accomplish all that has been promised in him. Jesus was fully man, but also fully God, and filled with the Spirit of God. And he is able to accomplish all that Isaiah 11 has written of him because of this powerful, relentless spirit. Why was Jesus able to rule with wisdom and understanding and counsel and might? Why did he have all knowledge and fear of the Lord? Because he had the Spirit of God resting on him. And why is it that his character, his judgments, his righteousness was perfect? Well, because he was walking in step with the Spirit of God. And why is it that he is able to rule in such a way that the consequences bring peace and everlasting joy. Well, because he was walking by the Spirit. When we rejoice that the King has come, we are rejoicing also in the fact that the Spirit of God himself has come. And when we consider what we're waiting for, who are we watching for, we must say we are looking not just for a historical fulfillment of prophecies, though he is that, but we are also looking for the life-giving, active, ongoing, powerful ministry of the Spirit of God. That is what marks Jesus, and therefore that is what marks his people. The thing that will supercharge our Advent season is to receive the same Spirit that marked Jesus Christ. You will miss it if you just go through the motions of the songs and the wreaths and the colors. 
the thing that let us know, the thing that still cries out to let us know that Jesus has come is the resting Spirit of God. And it is that Spirit that will give us marks like Jesus. It will teach us wisdom and discernment. It will help us to judge rightly, not with our eyes or what our ears hear. It will help us to believe and hope for peace where peace seems impossible. It will empower us when we are weak. And ultimately, it will give us hope in the midst of difficult circumstances. The Spirit of God still comes. And he rests on all of those who have received the Spirit-filled King. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at more of these characteristics. Isaiah 11 introduces them. This is the major mark. In the coming weeks, we will consider more of the consequences of Jesus' rule and reign. But for now, let's pray and ask that his Spirit would dwell with us. God, I ask that you would show us yourself in power. We don't want a form of godliness with no power. We don't want the facts concerning Jesus, but miss the Spirit that was indwelling him. Now, I ask even here now this morning that we would experience, Jesus, what you, you promised. You said that it would be better that you went because you would send the Helper. You would send the Spirit of God. And I ask that you would be true. Father and Son, send your Spirit. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would speak into our listlessness, speak into our difficulties, our suffering and illnesses, our dysfunction. Spirit of God, mark us. Make us like the King who has come. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.